The Zodiac Killer is probably one of the most familiar names you'll hear on my podcast. He, along with other famous names like Ted Bundy, Charles Manson, and John Wayne Gacy, are people I consider more or less low-hanging fruit in regards to a true crime podcast. They're a relatively easy topic to cover. Due to the notoriety of their crimes, the information available, and how adaptive they've been to Hollywood blockbusters or Netflix specials. Aside from episode one where I talked with you guys about Ed Gein, it wasn't really my intention when I started this podcast to hover around the most high-profile criminals or individuals. I was much more excited to tell you guys about new or obscure subjects that you hadn't heard of on another podcast or seen on documentary at least a dozen times already. I decided to break with that little tradition with this episode, because lately there's been a theory floating around that the identity of the Zodiac Killer may have actually been discovered after almost 60 years. On the off chance that you're unfamiliar with this story, the self-named Zodiac operated in Northern California in the latter half of the 1960s with at least five confirmed murders and claims to have been involved in almost 40 others around California and Nevada. The Zodiac would send these coded letters and make anonymous phone calls to newspapers and the police over the years to taunt them to remind them that he was still around and still free. Some of these extremely complex messages still remain unsolved to this day. We don't know what they say and that the Department of Justice in California still considers the Zodiac to be an open case since 1969. On this episode, we're going to recap the history of the Zodiac Killer's active years and go over the most likely suspects, including the most recent information that has come to light due to a team of former law enforcement investigators finding forensic evidence that makes a strong argument that that may have actually found the Zodiac. Welcome back to the Human Delicatessen. I hope you guys all had a good Christmas, and also, Happy New Year. Today, as I'm recording, is actually January 1st, and uh, I've already made my New Year's resolution. I don't know about you guys, but mine is to limit my usage of cuss words to, I guess, maybe two hours, two per hour, instead of the usual 30 or more. If you know me at all, uh, by default, I do curse like a sailor, and I have to make a conscious and difficult effort to abstain from using that kind of language in certain social circles where dropping F-bombs isn't really fully appreciated. If that doesn't take up most of my mental strength, though, maybe I can try to put off putting drinking energy drinks entirely as well. But moving on, we've got a lot of information to cover today, and for the moment, not a whole lot of time to do it, so let's press on and talk about the Zodiac. Officially, the Zodiac has had seven victims attached to his name, two of which are survivors. The first murders occurred on December 20th of 1968, when David Faraday and Betty Jensen, two high schoolers from the nearby town of Benicia, were out on their first date driving Faraday's mother's Rambler. The couple went to a friend's house to hang out for a while before they stopped at a local restaurant to grab a bite to eat. Around 10 p.m., they drove to the outskirts of town into Lake Harmon Road to a spot known to the locals as kind of a lover's lane. Less than an hour later, a woman named Stella Borges, who lived nearby, had heard some commotion and went out to the rambler she saw on the road with its lights on and engine running. And when she got there, she found the bodies of David and Betty, both of whom had been shot to death. It's not known for sure how the sequence of events had led to their deaths played out, but based on the forensic evidence that was available at the time, Robert Graysmith, at the time a political cartoonist for the San Francisco Chronicle, had theorized that another vehicle had pulled up alongside David and Betty a few minutes before 11 p.m., and the killer had approached the Rambler and ordered them out of the vehicle at gunpoint. As David was exiting the driver's side, the stranger had shot him in the head, killing him instantly. Betty then fled from the vehicle as fast as she could, but she was gunned down with five rounds to her back by the time she was found 28... she fell about 28 feet away from the car. 
The killer would then have returned to his vehicle and simply drove off. Now, about seven months later, on the 4th of July in 1969, just before midnight again, Darlene Farron and Michael Maggio had pulled into a Blue Rock Springs Park in Vallejo and parked Darlene's car. While they sat and talked or did whatever young couples do when they're parked on a quiet and dark side of the road, another vehicle had pulled up alongside them, just like what might have happened to Dave and Betty, but it pulled away just after a moment or two. This would strike them both as odd, as they were in a pretty secluded part of the road that didn't really cater to side-by-side parking. About 10 minutes later, the car returned and parked directly behind them with its beams in their rearview mirror. The driver had got out of his vehicle and approached the passenger side window. He then shined a flashlight in Michael's eyes and shot at the two of them with a 9mm Luger. Both Darlene and Michael were struck several times and three or four of the bullets that had struck uh, Michael had actually penetrated his body first before they passed through him and struck Darlene as well. As the, dri- as the shooter walked away, he heard Michael moaning. The shooter then turned around, walked back up to the car, and shot the couple two more times each before he drove off. The Blue Rock Springs Park, by the way, was only about four miles from where David and Betty were killed at Christmas, within the same county in the San Francisco Bay Area. The killer was described as a pretty average-sized white male, possibly between, being between 26 and 30 years old, about 200 pounds, and about 5 foot 8. He also had short, light brown, curly hair. And if you're curious how that information became known, it was because it seemed that those last two rounds still weren't enough to kill Michael. Even though he had been shot in the face, neck, and chest, he still managed to survive the attack, call the authorities, and give them a rough description. About 24 hours after the attack, a man had called the Vallejo PD from a gas station phone booth that was just within walking distance of the PD, as well as to Darlene's home, and claimed to have been the shooter in the previous night's attack, as well as for the murder of David Faraday and Betty Jensen from last Christmas. On the morning of August 1st, three letters, each of them identical to the others, were delivered likely by hand to the Vallejo Times-Herald, the San Francisco Chronicle, and the San Francisco Examiner. The author of the letters took credit for the shootings at Lake Harmon Road and Blue Rock Springs. Along with identical letters, each of the newspapers had received a unique cryptogram or a a coded message that the author claimed contained his identity. In this letter, he would demand that each newspaper publish their portion of the coded message on the respective front pages. Otherwise, he would spend the following weekend driving around and killing anyone that he saw walking alone at night, not stopping till he had killed at least a dozen. The Chronicle did not mess around. They published their portion the next day, and the other two were published as well, but not in time for the weekend. But the murder spree never occurred, and the article that was written alongside the Chronicle's portion of the code included an interview with the Vallejo Police Chief Jack Stiltz, who challenged the authenticity of the letter and coded message as being from the killer themselves, and pressed the author to provide significant details. A few days later, his request was answered, and a second letter was delivered to the examiner, which read as follows. Dear Editor, this is the Zodiac speaking. In answer to your asking for more details about the good times I've had in Vallejo, I shall be very happy to supply even more material. By the way, are the police having a good time with the code? If not, tell them to cheer up. When they do crack it, they will have me. On the 4th of July, I did not open the car door. The window was rolled down already. The boy was originally sitting in the front seat when I began firing. When I fired the first shot at his head, he leaped backwards at the same time, thus spoiling my aim. He ended up in the back seat 
then on the floor in the back, thrashing out very violently with his legs. That's how I shot him in the knee. I did not leave the scene of the killing with the squealing tires and racing engine as described by the Vallejo paper. I drove away quite slowly, as to not draw attention to my car. The man who told the police that my car was brown was a negro, about 40 to 45 years old, dressed rather shabbily. I was in this phone booth having some fun with the Vallejo cop when he was walking by. When I hung up the phone, the damn thing began ringing again, and that drew his attention to me and my car. Last Christmas. In that episode, the police were wondering how I could shoot and hit my victims in the dark. They did not openly state this, but implied this by saying that it was a well-lit night and I could see the silhouettes on the horizon. Bullshit. That area is surrounded by high hills and trees. What I did was tape a small pencil flashlight to the barrel of my gun. If you notice, in the center of the beam of light, if you aim it at a wall or ceiling, you will see a black or dark spot in the center of the circle of light, about three or six inches across. When taped to a gun barrel, the bullet will strike in the center of the black dot in the light. All I had to do was spray them as if it was a water hose. There was no need to use the gun sights. I was not happy to see that I did not get the front page coverage. The letter was signed simply with a circle with an X going through it, like our crosshairs of a gun. This would be the first time that the shooter was referred to as a Zodiac, and it was a response to Chief Stilts' request for the author of the letters to provide more details in order to prove that he was the genuine killer on those cases. A couple of days after that, Donald and Betty Hardin, a married couple who lived in Salinas, managed to decipher the cryptograms that had been published in the newspapers. Their coded message in its entirety contained a 408 symbols. When solved, the message was fear-inducing. I like killing people because it's more fun than killing wild game in the forest because man is the most dangerous animal of all to kill. Something gives me the most thrilling experience that is even better than getting your rocks off with a girl. The best part of it is when I die, I will be reborn in paradise, and all those I have killed will become my slaves. I will not give you my name, because you will try to slow down or stop my collection of slaves from my afterlife. There were 18 more symbols at the end of the message, but they still remain unsolved to this day. They may have been junk symbols to confuse anyone attempting to translate, or perhaps Zodiac used a different cipher or key to construct the final letters of the message. On September 27th, Brian Hartnell and Cecilia Shepard were taking a picnic break on a small island that overlooked Lake Berryessa in the late afternoon. Brian and Cecilia had both been taking classes at Pacific Union College and had been dating for a while. As they relaxed in a blanket and enjoyed each other's company and the California autumn weather, a man was approaching them from the hill below. The man wore a black hood over his face like an executioner. A pair of clip-on sunglasses was fastened to the cover of his eye holes, and he wore a white sheet or pillowcase across his chest that looked like a little bit like a bib, but it had, at its center, a hand-drawn symbol that was the same as the one the Zodiac used to sign his letters, the circle and crosshairs. By the time Brian and Cecilia noticed the man, he'd already drawn his 45 pistol and was already upon them. The man told the couple that he was an escaped convict and had killed a prison guard on his way out and stolen his car. He told the couple that he needed a fresh vehicle that the cops wouldn't be looking for, as well as whatever money they had to get him across the border to Mexico. He tossed the couple two lengths of pre-measured plastic cord rope and told Cecilia to tie Brian's hands behind his back, and that he would tie her up himself afterward. Still convinced that this was just a robbery, they both complied and tried not to resist. Brian stayed cool and calm, believing that if everything went smoothly, he and Cecilia would be alright. But then... The man, who would later found, be found to be the Zodiac, pulled out a hunting knife and viciously began stabbing them in the back, 
Brian first six times, and then poor Cecilia ten times. The Zodiac then got up from the picnic blanket and hiked about 500 yards to the couple's vehicle, and with a felt-tip marker, he wrote the following on the driver's side door. Vallejo, December 12, 1969. July 4, 1969. September 27, 1969, 6.30. By knife, and the message was signed with another crosshair and symbol. As it happened, a father and son who had been fishing in a nearby cove had heard Cecilia screaming for help either during the attack or after she was sure the attacker had left. They followed the screams until they found Brian and Cecilia still bound with their hands behind their backs and suffering several, several stab wounds. Brian was unresponsive. The son bolted to the nearest available phone and two Napa County Sheriff's deputies were the first to arrive. Before the ambulance arrived, they were able to get some information concerning the attack from Cecilia, who was still conscious. 27 miles away, a call was made to the Napa County Sheriff's Office and someone told them that a double murder had just been committed in the area. Due to the help of a nearby radio reporter who had good communication with the Sheriff's Office, they quickly found out that the call had originated from a payphone at the Napa Car Wash. When the authorities drove to the payphone, they, they noticed the phone was still off the hook and still looked like it had perspiration from someone's palm on it. Unfortunately, shortly after Brian and Cecilia were transported to the hospital, Cecilia slipped into a coma and would pass away two days later. It was Brian who would eventually recover. On October 11th, two weeks later, taxi driver Paul Stein picked up a white male passenger at the intersection of Mason and Geary. The passenger had requested to be taken to Presidio Heights, which is a, a picturesque neighborhood that's on the northern tip of the San Francisco pen Peninsula. Stein had, for unknown reasons, missed the turn he was supposed to take and he pulled over, probably under, in, under direction of the passenger. The passenger pulled out a 9mm handgun and shot the driver once in the head, killing him instantly. He then took Stein's wallet and car keys and tore away and stuffed in his pockets a section of the now bloody t-shirt that Stein was wearing at the time. He also went around the cab and wiped down areas that he had made contact with before walking away from the scene and heading north on foot. All of this was seen by three teenagers who watched the entire events unfold from a window and called police while it was still in progress. Two patrol officers, who were just a couple of blocks away when dispatch call, put out the call, were on a short drive to the scene. They passed a white man who had been walking in the direction the teenagers, teenagers had last seen the shooter walking towards and walking up to the front door of one of the houses. From their recollection, the man looked between 35 and 40, about 5859, with a crew cut style hairstyle. At the time, the dispatcher had informed the officers to be on the lookout for a black male subject for some reason, which is why the officers disregarded the man when they saw him. This mix up of information is still unexplained, as the teenagers had described the man as being white, 25 to 30 years old, 5'10 with a military style crew cut. If the information had been relayed accurately and nobody at the police dispatch had managed to so egregiously drop the ball, the killer would have been caught just moments after he shot Paul. At the time of the murder, the police were treating the incident as a robbery that had simply gone wrong. To add insult to injury, three days later, a letter arrived at the San Francisco Chronicle from the Zodiac where he claimed to be the one responsible for the taxi driver shooting. He also wrote about plans to shoot out the front tires of a random school bus and to pick off the kitties as they came bouncing out of the bus, as he wrote. To prove the letter's authenticity, the Zodiac included a section of the bloody shirt that he had torn off of Stein's clothing. The officers had likely driven right past the Zodiac killer that night and had missed their opportunity to 
due to incorrect information being relayed. I, I go over this in my head and I had to think that that radio dispatcher uh, who was responsible for that, for that misinformation had to feel a fair degree of shame or regret ever having so badly messed that up. The teenagers were able to provide enough details for the police to construct a sketch of the supposed Zodiac killer. Sorry, I got a burp that's nesting in here. Paul Stein would be the last official victim attributed to the Zodiac, and over the years, over 25 suspects, 2,500, sorry, 2,500 suspects total would be investigated by the San Francisco PD. To date, the Zodiac Killer is still considered an open case. But the Zodiac Killer wasn't completely finished, at least with taunting the police over the years. In November 8th, still in 1969, Zodiac mailed a holiday greeting card to the authorities that contained another 340 symbol cryptogram. It would remain unsolved for 51 years until it was solved in December of 2020 by an American software engineer, an Australian mathematician, and a Belgian programmer. That is how you call a coalition of problem solving. Uh, the now out-of-date message will refer to an anonymous call to the Oakland PD in 1969 that someone claiming to be the Zodiac had demanded that two specific high-profile lawyers would appear on a local TV talk show, AM San Francisco, to be present to take his phone call on the air. Someone claiming to be the Zodiac did contact the, the show and even arranged to meet one of the lawyers, Melvin Belly, outside of a business on Mission Street under the pretense that he would only turn himself into the lawyer to protect him from the gas chamber, but no one ever showed up. The greeting card, when it was deciphered in 2020 and considered to be a genuine Zodiac correspondent, stated that the caller was not the Zodiac, but an imposter. But that would be old news by 2020, because shortly after the actual failed meeting, the call would be traced back to a mental institution. However, Melvin Belly, the lawyer who was dragged into the talk show in the situation in the first place, would, ed would end up actually receiving a letter at his house that included another piece of Stein's bloody shirt, and included a request for the lawyer's assistance in defending him should he ever be captured. The Zodiac would continue to send letters and cards to the press. In one letter he sent in April 1970, he included a 13-letter cipher that he claimed if solved would reveal his name. Unfortunately, it's never been solved, even to this day. So if you know anyone who fancies themselves as a codebreaker, uh, you've still got a shot at fame and glory. There would be a bombing in San Francisco's police station that would claim the life of a sergeant, but Zodiac would deny his involvement, but he would also in the same letter claimed to have a total of 10 victims as a challenge to the PD of having zero suspects, claiming five more that the police were at that time unaware of. Another greeting card sent in April stated that Zodiac would go through with his bomb plan unless the Chronicle published the full details of his plan and that he wanted to see people walking around wearing buttons with his signature insignia on them. In July, Zodiac took credit for the abduction of a pregnant woman who had briefly been held hostage in a man's vehicle after he gave her a lift when one of her tires of her own car had mysteriously come off after that same man had, quote-unquote, helped her tighten the lug nuts on the side of the road. The woman, along with her infant daughter, managed to escape after she jumped out of the vehicle and hid in nearby brush. His letter, where he claimed this, would now claim to be 13-0. Zodiac would be linked for possibly being connected to four other murders, including one that may have been his first back in 1966, a young woman named Sherry Jo Bates. Confusion would surround the whole claim, as someone else had been sending anonymous letters to the family and the authorities and staging these elaborate so-called evidence of the Zodiac's involvement. 
evidence that pointed to Zodiac not being responsible for Sherry's murder, ultimately, but he still took credit for it, and he raised his kill score with another letter that he claimed was 37 for him, the PD-0. The letters would continue to trickle in. Some were legit from the Zodiac, but most were found to be hoaxes or were largely inconsistent with his style, wording, and MO of the Zodiac Killer. About 20 people were seriously considered as being possible suspects, including a couple males from Charles Manson's family, Ted Kaczynski, who's the Unabomber when he was arrested in 1996, and George Hodel. If you remember him, we talked about him, that physician uh, who was suspected of killing and mutilating Elizabeth Short, aka the Black Dahlia. If you recall the episode, his own son, who would go on to become a police detective and investigator, would also claim that his own father was also a more than solid fit for the Zodiac. But the person that comes up the most often as possibly being the Zodiac is a man named Arthur Lee Allen, or should I say was a man named Arthur Lee Allen. Spoiler alert. Allen was a favorite amongst the investigators involved in the Zodiac killings in the earliest days of the investigation. He had been in the area of Lake Berryessa when Brian Hartnell and Cecilia Shepard had been tied up and stabbed by the hooded figure. Allen's claim was that he was been scuba diving in that area along the coast that same day around that same time. He was questioned again when a co-worker of his had gone to the police claiming that Allen had told him about his desire to kill people, how he would tape a flashlight to the end of his gun and would call himself the Zodiac, named after the brain of wristwatch that his mother had given him for a Christmas present. The co-worker would say that his conversation took place sometime around January of 1968, or 69, I think, I can't get clearance on that, a few months before the first murder would take place around Lake Harmon. And Allen would say that these ideas were really just a, a... you know, floating around for a novel he was working on. There was a lot of circumstantial evidence that linked Allen as the Zodiac. Uh, Mike Maggiel, the survivor of the second attack, identified Allen as the man who had shot him, but the officer who more than likely passed the Zodiac after the taxicab shooting said that Allen was definitely too large and too tall to be, have been the man he saw fleeing the scene. Also, Allen owned a royal brand typewriter with the Elite Type font, which was the same as the letters that had been sent to Sherry Jo Bates' family after her 1966 murder, you know, the, 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 the hoax letters, which was still only suspected of being a Zodiac-involved crime, just not officially. Allen was also owned and wore the Zodiac brand wristwatch, which to me is more coincidental than anything else. Uh, he also lived and worked in close proximity to where some of the murders took place and where one of the victims lived. Ultimately, though, Allen was removed as part of the as a suspect in 2002, when partial DNA profile of the Zodiac had been compared to samples of Allen's DNA and came back as not a match. Also, from searches of Allen's property and belongings following his death in 1992, none of the writing samples of Allen's matched the samples of the Zodiac's penmanship or spelling, nor was there any evidence or suggestion that Allen had interest in coded messages, cryptograms, or ciphers. The most recent suspect has come up to light is a name you might have been seen thrown around on social media like Facebook or TikTok. Just last month, in October 2021, well not last month, but yeah, in October 2021, a team of over 40 cold case investigators, former law enforcement, military intelligence officers, and deep digging journalists called the Codebreakers all collectively, uh, believe they had uncovered enough evidence to suggest that a man named Gary Francis Post, who had passed away in 2018, was the Zodiac Killer. The suspicion of Post's involvement originates from a small series of social media posts from someone named Glenn Barnes, who shared photos of himself posing with an elderly Post, who in the photo's captions he refers to as Zodiac. He would further make cryptic posts where he would claim that Post was indeed the Zodiac killer and promise to tell the whole truth when the time is right. 
the casebreakers picked up the slack and looked into the unsolved murder of Cherry Joe Bates from back in 66. Officially, the Riverside PD considers the, case, the Bates case to be unsolved and still open. However, according to declassified memo from the FBI to the Riverside PD it was written in, that was written in 1975, the FBI considers Bates as an official victim of the Zodiac, contrary to the narrative that Riverside PD has been trying to establish. It's also claimed that by working Gary Post's name into the cipher in a specific sequence reveals an alternate message in the cryptograms that Zodiac sent to the press. But so far as I've seen, the casebreaker has yet to release what those alternate messages really are. Another tenuous connection between Post and the Zodiac is that the suggestion, the similarity between Gary Post and the existing sketch of the Zodiac based on the description of the teenagers who witnessed the shooting death of Paul Stein, the taxi driver. Concerning the lines the artist drew on the forehead that looked like brow lines and how they might be similar to the horizontal scars that Post had going across his forehead. Uh, to make proving Post's involvement even more difficult, the team has requested that the DNA collected from the body of Sherry Joe Bates, the profile of the Zodiac, and the DNA of Gary Post all be put through rigorous comparison, but the Codebreakers have been denied access to the Zodiac DNA profile or those found on Sherry Bates. The authorities say that this is to prevent non-law non enforcement agency from kicking up dust and bothering the relatives of Bates or Post, and the Codebreakers to interpret this as the law enforcement trying to save face by not allowing a group of civilians to access the evidence and information that could solve a 50 plus year old case. There's also a number of coincidences that connect Bates' victim to Gary Post. Post was an Air Force veteran who received medical, medical VA checkups at a hospital that was only about 15 minutes away from the murder scene. He also worked as a painter for 30 or 40 years before the murder, and at the scene of Cherry Bates's murder, investigators found a man's watch that was thought to have belonged to the killer, which had several instances of paint splatter. Several people who shared some aspects of their lives with Gary Post, whether they thought, uh, whether they were neighbors or his own children or stepchildren, have claimed that they've either told authorities they suspect him as being the Zodiac, or are completely unsurprised by the accusation, saying that it fits his personality. And that is how you talk about the Zodiac in 30 minutes or less. There was a lot to unpack there, and I'm sure you noticed that I picked up my pace a few times trying to get it all fitted in. I've been told that some of you guys prefer to listen to these episodes while you're jogging, cleaning house, or otherwise being productive, which I take as a personal compliment because A, you're listening, and B, at least you're not listening while you're trying to go to sleep. Hopefully I'm not boring you. If I am boring you, don't tell me. I have a very sensitive self-esteem. If you're the jogging type listener, do yourself a favor and Google how to tie a heel lock in your laces if you haven't already. It really helps. And if you're the house cleaning type listener, when you pour yourself a bucket of hot mop water in Fabuloso, add a quarter cup of powdered laundry detergent. It's really the best. And I don't know why I'm telling you this now. I feel like I probably should have told you in the intro before we got started so that way you would have it prepped for this episode. That's a poor planning. But, well, you know what? We'll save it for next week. Uh, speaking of next week, we're going to head over to a city in the south that has a lot of nicknames. Crescent City, NOLA, the Big Easy, and the birthplace of jazz. That last nickname is especially relevant because the subject we'll be talking about is, or should I say was, a serial killer in New Orleans that had a particular liking for jazz music. That blues and ragtime mixture of Southern Sound might have saved your life once or twice if you lived in that area just before the Roaring Twenties. Because if the Axeman of New Orleans had heard jazz playing from your window while he wandered the neighborhood at night, 
he might just decide not to break into your house while you slept and not to kill you with an axe or an old-fashioned straight razor, Sweeney Todd style. He, too, would go to the local newspapers with a letter to be published for the people of the city to read in abject horror. But that's all the time I have for for today. I hope you guys did have a good Christmas, and that the presence of family and friends was just as enjoyable, or perhaps more so, than the presence underneath your tree. And I hope that 2022 is a more bountiful year for all of us. Remember to be excellent to each other, and I'll see you all right here next week on The Human Delicatessen.